I'm David Goldstein, Senior Fellow at Civic Ventures. I'm Paul Constant, and I'm a writer at Civic Ventures. Paul, so just before we started recording, I revealed to Ashley that uh, part of my past career that I was the uh, co-author of an off-Broadway musical flop, but but you have an illustrious background as well, I understand. That is correct. I uh, worked at a Walmart in Colorado Springs for exactly three weeks. And uh, wow. it was part of my misspent youth. It was uh, right after my career as a mall Easter bunny. But uh, yeah, I worked at Walmart and it was one of the more uh, demeaning jobs that I'd ever worked. It was actually uh, a Walmart super center that was going to open in Colorado Springs. And so we were just setting up. I didn't actually do any customer service. I was uh, just, you know, following the diagrams of the store, uh, putting stock on shelves and all that. And then uh, three days before the store was supposed to open, they announced that we weren't far enough ahead of schedule. And so they were locking the doors and we were not allowed (laughs) to leave until the shelves were stocked. I remember this announcement very clearly. And then the managers came down and there were parents who were crying. They were like, my kids, I've got to get home to my kids. Uh, You know, what do I do about that? And they're like, well, call a babysitter. Um, and so I, uh, went out to the loading dock and I said, Hey, uh, to the receiving crew, I said, Hey, can I get a cigarette before they lock the doors? Cause I was a smoker back then. And they said, sure. And so I went out the loading dock, I lit a cigarette and then I jumped a chain link fence and <laughs> ran away and never came back. Oh. Uh, it was, yeah. Yeah. So smoking really is good for your health, your mental <laughs> health in this case. <laughs> it definitely saved my mental health in that case. Yeah, it was it was not a great job. Uh, every morning we had a store meeting where they would play taking care of business and uh, <laughs> workers would have to spell out Walmart with their bodies. Uh, the store manager would say, give me a W and you'd make a W with your hands and give me an A. And then this is back in the day when Walmart had a hyphen in its name. Uh, they got rid of that a few years ago. But for that part, they would say, give me a squiggly. And everybody would have to like shake their butts uh, to, uh-huh. to signify the hyphen. It was just it was a thoroughly demeaning job. Uh, and I uh, did not regret running away from it at all. The minimum wage at the time, I think, was uh, four twenty five. And they probably paid us four seventy five an hour for the privilege of spelling out Walmart <laughs> with our live dancing bodies to the tune of taking care of business. So uh, anyway, okay. there's there's very little love lost between me and uh, Walmart. Uh, and so then uh, you should be a, a very objective interviewer of today's guest. Today, we are talking with Rick Wartzman. Uh, He is the head of the KH Moon Center for a Functioning Society at the Drucker Institute. Uh, He's a part of Claremont Graduate University uh, and the author of several books. Uh, He's written a great book about the Grapes of Wrath. Uh, He wrote a book uh, called The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America. And for the purposes of this conversation, is the author most recently of Still Broke, Walmart's Remarkable Transformation and the Limits of Socially Conscious Capitalism. Yeah, I'm not convinced how socially conscious Walmart's capitalism really is. Uh, according to a study in 2020, Walmart had the most workers on food stamps and Medicaid. So how much progress could they really have made? And Even with a minimum wage between $12 and $17 an hour, their workers are still broke, Paul. And speaking of still broke, let's talk to Rick. Uh, 
I'm Rick Wartsman. I'm the co-president of Bendable Labs. We're a company that develops and tests uh, different social innovations, different products um, in the areas of workforce development and lifelong learning and job quality. And um, my latest book um, is uh, called Still Broke, uh, Walmart's Remarkable Transformation and the Limits of Socially Conscious Capitalism. So Rick, tell us about uh, what made you want to write about Walmart in the first place. Yeah, I've been a kind of student of Walmart or maybe critic is a better word uh, for a long time, going way back while 20 years now. Um, I was the business editor of the Los Angeles Times back in 2003. And my team took a really deep dive at what we described in this three-part series called the Walmart effect as the high human cost of low prices. And we really took a deep and fair look at the company um, and the good it did, right? It, it brought a lot of high quality goods at low prices to regions of the country, to consumers that wouldn't maybe necessarily otherwise have access to um, those low price goods. And we gave credit to Walmart for uh, holding down the inflation rate somewhat for the entire country, at least as some economists calculated it. Um, but we also looked at the other side of the ledger, if you will, and again, at that high human cost. So it was everything from you know, changing the aesthetic of downtown America and, and sort of driving you know smaller mom and pop businesses away. Walmart did along with, of course, many other um, kind of big box retailers, but Walmart is the Goliath of all this. Um, Walmart pushing manufacturing uh, overseas in this never-ending chase for holding down expenses and and uh, you know trying to get low low costs themselves um, so they could pass on those low prices to consumers and of course the way they treated their own um, labor in terms of you know not providing a paycheck uh, that certainly a family could live on but even you know in many cases a, a single Walmart worker might really struggle to get by. And so we looked at at all of that, and um, you know, my team went on to win the the 2004 Pulitzer Prize for national reporting uh, for this series. And um, I continued to follow the company over a long period of time. And you know, over the last 20 years, I was a, a critic as well in my last book, uh, The End of Loyalty: The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America. I kind of held Walmart up then as a really a paradigm of, in many ways, 21st century capitalism, right? One that for a lot of, of companies valued profits over people, put shareholders first, and held up Walmart and again as, as kind of a negative example, if you will. And then I did notice some changes were beginning to happen at the company. And um, I, I actually developed a bit of a new relationship with them um, and, uh, and, and wanted to to dive in deeper and in a different way. Um, so yeah, I can can tell you about the turn if if you would like. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about how the how this transformation played out and and yeah. give us some ideas of what specifically has changed? Yeah, absolutely. So just to kind of close the loop on my own, you know, how I came to write the book. So um, I was actually um, out talking uh, about uh, my book, The End of Loyalty, in 2017. It came out, and I was giving some talks at different venues. And among the things I was talking about in, in the context of the unraveling of the social contract between employer and employee in America over the last 50 years, right along with stagnant pay and eroding retirement security and health benefits, uh, job security on the decline, all of these things. Uh, you know, another thing is that employers stopped investing so much in frontline worker training. 
um, you know, skills training for folks. And um, was another part of this, again, this weakening of the social contract. And I was talking about um, some thinking I was doing around that in my day job at the time. I was at the Drucker Institute, a social enterprise based at Claremont Graduate University. And I was just thinking about developing this kind of lifelong learning workforce development system that we could take to communities. And I kind of worked it into some of the book talks I was doing. And lo and behold, there were some Walmart um, executives in the audience at a couple of them. And they kind of sought me out and, and um, we began to find some common ground in the area, the need to develop skills training for frontline workers. And long story short, Walmart, along with Google, um, they began to, um, uh, they became a funder of this initiative at the Drucker Institute. And um, they were a generous funder. And I was shocked, as you might imagine, having been this longtime critic, I thought, you know, man, that, you know, maybe, maybe they're trying to buy me off, you know, what, what is going on here? Um, but it didn't really matter. I mean, they turned out to be great partners and it also gave me a new window into the company. And um, I had, again, paid attention enough to know Walmart had started to raise wages in 2015. They were investing in training. I came to learn that they were um, changing scheduling practices, providing more full-time hours, fewer part-time hours, all of these really positive developments that had begun under Doug McMillan, their current CEO who had uh, become CEO in 2014. And I approached somebody at the company. I then had this different relationship, right? I was no longer just a journalist with a, you know, kind of wielding a pen. I was a grantee and I had, you know, some relationships. And I said, hey, I want to tell this story um, of how and why you've come to invest in frontline workers for the first time, really, in your history. I don't think you've gotten the the due you've deserved, and and I wanna I wanna tell that story, but I'm also you know if I do this I'm gonna need access, and I'm not gonna pull any punches. I'm gonna talk to all your critics. I'm not gonna sugarcoat any shortcomings I find, and I'm gonna come to my own truth. But if you're willing to do that, I'd I'd like to be the one that that tells this, and the result is is this book still broke. What do you think started this uh, transformation? Uh, I mean, what the, the flip side to Walmart's old slogan, always low prices, was always low wages. And they were really consistent about that for yes. decades. Correct. Uh, and, you know, part of that Walmart effect uh, was that when they would move into a market, wages would drop in retail, specifically even more so in supermarkets. So McMillan comes in in 2014. In 2015, he announces um, their, I think it was a $10 minimum wage. That's what, right. What prompted this? Was it a business decision? I think fundamentally, yes. But I think it was a confluence of things. So, you know, one pressure had been building both internally and externally at that point, you know, by early 2015 for really a decade. So, you know, the external pressures came from unions, right? You remember the big union campaigns by the Service Employees International Union and the United Food and Commercial Workers, right? It was, you know, wake up Walmart and Walmart Watch. And um, they really, you know, took on the company and, and really gave it a kind of black eye publicly. They, they There's two campaigns which were not coordinated at all, but they both were from like 2005, six, seven in there, um, had, had really kind of sullied Walmart's reputation, made it harder for the company to move into urban areas and attract more affluent customers and, and so on. They really went after Walmart like a political opponent. Um, very well-funded, you know, well-coordinated efforts um, that that did real damage. 
Um, after that, of course, um, our Walmart, um, this labor organization had spun out of the Food and Commercial Workers today. It's called United for Respect. Um, they continued to put pressure on the company. The interfaith community was putting pressure on the company. Walmart has engaged with the Interfaith Center uh, on Corporate Responsibility, you know, the nuns, right, who come to Bentonville for the shareholders meetings and uh, get in the company's ear. Um, you had politicians like Bernie Sanders and, and others decrying Walmart's low wages and, and journalists like me, right, you know, pains with a pen who, who, are, who are going after them. And so a lot of outside pressure building over time um, and pretty unrelenting. You also had internal change agents, people who had come in, the company had begun to see itself as, and, I, and I don't, I'm not cynical about this. I think they really were trying to become a more socially responsible company in many ways. Um, it began uh, when they did some real good uh, around Hurricane Katrina, providing relief to the kind of uh, hurricane ravaged parts of the Gulf states, and they invested a lot in environmental initiatives and other initiatives, um, but they really hadn't done much on the worker front, but but that was building. And then you really hit it. It was really a business imperative, probably first and foremost at the end of the day. They had cut labor costs so deeply that turnover was just running you know, super high, even in the context of retail where turnover is high for you know pretty much everybody. Um, but they were off the charts high. Stores were dirty. The shelves weren't being stocked properly. Uh, items were piling up inventory in the in the back room, literally to the point that they couldn't open the door into the you know storage areas because things were not being uh, put on the shelves quickly enough, and they weren't being uh, they weren't merchandising right. And so uh, you just ended up with a real business problem. They had declining same store sales quarter after quarter after quarter. Um, largely because they had cut labor costs just you know to the bone, and Doug, I think Doug McMillan knew he had to had to invest. Did raising the wages actually help retain workers, uh, hire new ones, and did it improve the the uh, quality of the stores, uh, the shopping experience for customers? Yeah, I think the easiest one to answer is yes. You know, it 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 definitely helped in terms of the shopping experience, um, and you can see sales you know recovered. Um, Walmart. You know has has done by and large very well and continued to grow, um, and uh, you know by all accounts um, and all of their metrics, our stores cleaner. You know, as customer service, you know, faster, our customers being served better. Um, the answer is yes across the board, and and turnover. You know, by what they've told me, did go down. They will not. They did not disclose exact turnover figures to me, but you know, I heard they were as high as two hundred percent. There's an anecdote in the book where a top executive goes into one Walmart and the turnover was 400%. This was before these changes. And so, um, you know, I, I'm quite sure that, yes, the investments, there has been an, an ROI or return on investment um, for investing in their in their workers, uh, you know, to the degree they have. And um, so in, in that sense, it has, it has paid off. Um, and they've continued to invest, right? You, you said it. So in 2015, and then 2016, there was a two-step increase um, so that their starting wage went to $10 an hour. Um, before they instituted it, that, that two-step increase, the average starting wage at Walmart was $7.65 an hour. So barely over the, the federal minimum wage then and mm -hmm. right still now of $7.25. And uh, you know, notable, they had never done any kind of across-the-board increase like this to their starting wage 
until 2015 from their founding in 1962 when Sam Walton founded the company. Um, so in Walmart's own context and in you know the context of their own history of their own business model and so on, you know this was as the subtitle suggests a, a remarkable transformation. They certainly had competition who were operating under a different business model. Uh, famously, uh, Costco at a, around the time uh, the, in 2015, I think their average pay was around $17 an hour, and they had much lower turnover and higher productivity and higher sales uh, per per employee, and they competed directly with Sam's Club. Um, right. which right. that's really Walmart the better, wages. yeah, that's really the, the better comparison and Sam's club, you know, did pay a bit more and, and, um, and actually accelerated its wage growth, but, but never has, you know, is, is not where close to, to Costco still. Um, and Costco is right, is often seen as the, you know, the counter example and the anti Walmart and for good reason. And I'm a big Costco admirer and got to know Jim Sinegal, the longtime CEO, when I was at the Drucker Institute, and uh, you know, I think they're they show what what can happen in this space. Um, but Walmart is also a different, you know, it is a different business model, right? Um, outside of the Sam's Club, more apples to apples kind of comparison. Mm -hmm. And and unfortunately, I think Walmart is much truer to the way most of retail is. And whether you look at you know Target or you know Best Buy or you know on and on and on, they're all you know, or they're all kind of the same, really. One of the things I really enjoyed in the book is you have, um, I didn't keep track, it must be like two or three or three or four times, uh, Walmart would call in someone and say, look, we have these problems, what's going on? And the the the, <laughs> yeah. the response is always, well, you could raise wages. And then they just basically like either ignore <laughs> them or boot them out or something like that. And you mentioned this internal struggle, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, was that a cultural thing from the very beginning at Walmart? They 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 really resisted for a very long time. Even uh, intelligent people who they hire to to tell them to raise wages, they just completely uh, fought it tooth and nail. It seems like for 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 decades. Um, was that unique to Walmart? Was it a retail thing? Where did it come from? What's the the deal with not wanting to raise wages? Yeah. So I think look, retail generally has has historically and and you know across across the board, with a few exceptions, right has has not paid well. Um, Sam Walton, who you know did supplement wages um, with profit sharing, that in the end you know got taken away in 2010. The program he had put in place, and that made things more tolerable. But he acknowledged in his autobiography that he paid chintzy. I think was his word. Um, and so again, you know, Walmart. I, I think like a lot of companies, um, you know, I don't think these are evil people or bad people. I think. Um, you know, like a lot of like a lot of corporations, they drink a lot of their own Kool-Aid. And, mm -hmm. you know, that plays out in a couple of ways. So one is right, our social good, they would tell themselves, is holding down prices for um communities, particularly lower income communities, right? And people who are struggling to get by. And the way we contribute is we let you buy, you know, things that are real value off our shelves. And, and one way you have to do that is you have to hold labor costs down. So, you know, but we're on the other end of that equation, providing a social good, whether that really pencils out and, and so on, we can get into, I, I, I don't, I don't think that argument holds a lot of water at the end of the day, but, but I think they genuinely persuaded themselves of, of that. Um, I also think there is a, again, very typical of, of a lot of big employers 
that don't pay a living wage, they think they're doing better than they are, right? I, I think that there is almost just a kind of an empathy gap, a, a lived experience understanding gap, um, particularly as right income inequality has has grown and those in the C-suite are making, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times what the frontline, you know, typical frontline worker is making. I don't think they really appreciate what it's like to try and get by on, you know, whatever, right? 14 bucks an hour or, you know, up until recently, 12 bucks an hour, right? Or whatever, if you were, you were at Walmart. And so um, I don't know if they appreciate what just the, the daily struggle is like. And because they, they don't, I think it's very easy to convince themselves, you know, we care about our people. We're doing right by our people. We, we listen to our people. We're, you know, we're, we're a good employer. And I think, I think there's a lot of, you know, self-convincing that goes on. Right. And they're not, they're not alone. We could call that the Starbucks effect. Totally. Uh, Howard totally. Schultz, who seems convinced that he's the best employer ever. Correct. And is just totally personally offended when his employees try to unionize. That's right. Right. And there it's around, you know, right. Voice, having real voice and decision-making. I mean, right. I'm sure all these companies, it's the same thing, right. To them voices. Well, we do a lot of pulse surveys and we have, you know, an open door policy. So of course we're on top of what our employees really think and feel and want and, and how they want to contribute to actual decision-making at the company. And, and of course that is, you know, preposterous. Um, and, you know, it's fun, funny watching what's playing out at Starbucks and at Amazon, Right. Walmart really mm -hmm. wrote the playbook on all this. They they were the company that the food and commercial workers tried for many 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 years to to unionize and organize and uh, you know couldn't get so much as a toehold in there. Um, and Walmart going back to Sam Walton and and setting up a company that would be union you know vigorously anti union anti labor organized labor you know all the things that you see now and all the allegations and and charges that you see filed for surveilling workers and shutting down locations where there's organizing activity and right and you know if there is a contract you know not coming to the you know bargaining table in good faith and all these things i mean walmart wrote the book on all this stuff so even with this transformation how much of an impact is it having having on walmart workers in their communities yeah so this was for me i guess you know and i remember coming to this and and trying to make sense of, of what was going on at Walmart, which is to say, I really do give them credit for having turned a corner. Again, this is a company that hadn't raised its starting wage across the company, you know, from 1962 to 2015. They've continued to invest, which is, which is great, right? There was uh, just, you know, in the last few weeks, they announced they were raising wages again, so that their starting wage uh, is going to $14 an hour now. Their average wage is up to $17.50. They have more full-time workers, as I said, and, and relying less on part-time labor. They're, you know, up to, you know, probably between 65 and 70% full-time labor now. They've invested in training. They have improved benefits some and so on. So all of that is to the good. And, and uh, you know, I've said before, I did not write the part of the subtitle, Walmart's Remarkable Transformation. That wasn't composed casually. Right. I, I don't think it's totally PR. And I, I don't, you know, I, I give them credit for and give Doug credit for for making the changes that they have made. And 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 they're good, right? Every dollar increase helps people. And when you are a low-paid worker, 
And this is true in industry after industry, right? Every dollar or even, you know, some sense, it helps because you're making so little. And so I, I, I don't want to totally minimize it. But the hard truth is, is that at the end of the day, even with all this change, right, even at $14 an hour as a minimum or, or an at, let's say the average wage, right, which they now say is $17.50 an hour, the, the average Walmart worker, when you do the math um, and you kind of do a weighted average of full, how many full-time workers they have and part-time workers across their you know, workforce of 1.6 million or so hourly workers, you know, you get to a shade above $29,000 a year. And even if you just count the full-time people, right? So just the full-time Walmart workers, like 1.1 million full-time Walmart workers, you get up, you go to work every day, full-time, the average Walmart worker is still making less than $33,000 a year. You know, that is not a living wage. And, no. and, and that's what's so crazy to me about this is watching this company that has in many ways push so hard in the context of who they are and and really trying and doing and and at the end of the day well you know their workers are still broke as the title says i think they're still broke as a company because they haven't really fixed this and and i think as a society we're still broke cuz you know this is what sort of passes now for good capitalism so is is one of the limits of socially conscious capitalism that no one company can possibly do this on their own because they're competing against all the other companies and maybe what we need is just a really high federal minimum wage that is the conclusion i came to right so i've always been a both end you know guy if you will right i've always thought that there's an important role for government and an important role for business to restore shared prosperity in america and uh, carve up the pie in, in a way that really just gives labor its rightful share of a growing economy and right growing amounts of productivity um, that they they rightfully share in the, in the fruits of, of of their own labor that workers can do that um, and I've always seen a role for both government and business in that but in my last book the end of loyalty I did lean more on to the government sets the guardrails and provides a safety net when people really need it but it's really up to business to make this happen. And this deep dive into Walmart changed my mind about that because I, I concluded like this is a company that is really trying and has a CEO who I believe really does care. And yet at the end of the day, after all of this and years of this now, you know, they got to less than $33,000 a year for a full-time worker. Um, what it told me is that corporate America will never go far enough fast enough on its own. And that the only way to solve what I see is not just at Walmart, but a wage crisis affecting, you know, 25 to 40% of U.S. workers, right? So you're talking, you know, 40 to 65 million people right. who struggle to make ends meet often, um, even though they get up and go to work every day. The only way we're going to fix this is yes. And I wouldn't even call it high. I would just say a true living wage, right? It's, mm -hmm. which to me is, you know, I, the book calls for $20 an hour, Um and then peg it to the median wage, or you could peg it to inflation. So it, it keeps up with the cost of living after that. And that sounds crazy, right? When you were at 725 for the federal minimum wage, right? To, to leap to $20 an hour. But, you know, what, 15? The fight for 15 is great, but that started more than a decade ago, right? As you <laughs> right. know well, like yeah. $20 an hour is a little over 40 grand for a full, if somebody has lucky enough to have full time hours. On its on its face, that's a living wage, right? And that's a family living wage. Yeah. And 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 it it would still be less 
than what the minimum wage would have been had it continued to rise with productivity right as it had in the decades prior to i think it's peak in 1968 69 or 68 right it would be about 24 dollars an hour today yeah yeah and somehow even walmart managed to get by paying that high minimum wage back then (laughs) so you know you would think that they'd figure out how to do it again, uh, continue that remarkable transformation. Yeah, no, you would. Uh, but again, this this really gets to at the end of the day, right? We've now over the last fifty years, you know, come to this place where you know who's winning in all this, right? If workers haven't been getting their fair share, right? We know, and again, you all know super well, right? Where where's the money going? And it's going to the top one percent or fraction of one percent. It's really being paid out to shareholders at the expense of workers. And you can really see this play out at, you know, it's interesting, right? So Walmart describes itself like all the other signatories to the business roundtable statement on the purpose of a corporation that came out right in 2019. Mm -hmm. And uh, they they signed on. Doug McMillan was the chair of the business roundtable right after Jamie Dimon was the chair when this new statement came out and when they embraced stakeholder capitalism, right? We're going to take care of all of our stakeholders and specifically rejected this notion of shareholder primacy of putting shareholders first. And, you know, I did the math and and you look at it and Walmart's invested from, from 2015, that first pay raise to the end of 2021, where kind of my book ends, Walmart invested five to $6 billion in higher wages, again, better scheduling, more training, and so on. That's great. And that's real money, five to six billion dollars. So, you know, are they a stakeholder capitalism company? Yeah, you could say that's a real investment in, in their stakeholders, the workers. At the same time, over that same period, they bought back $43 billion worth of their stock. <laughs> so, you know, I'm just the old journalist in me, right? I just follow the money and I say, okay, I believe you're more of a stakeholder capitalism company, but you can't tell me shareholder primacy is dead, right? Right? Because I've got $43 billion over here versus five to six over there. Well, well, to be fair, at least one of the Waltons believes in high wages because uh, they <laughs> bought the Denver Broncos yeah, and exactly. gave Russell <laughs> that... Wilson a raise to $49 million a year. There you go. There you It'll go. Trickle down. The, yeah, I'm <laughs> well, sure. Uh, <laughs> I think we've we've kept you a little longer, but I wanted to ask you uh, the question we ask all of our guests: uh, Why do you do this work? Wow, that's a really great question. Um, you know, this may sound really corny. I, I do this work because of the way I was raised. You know, by my parents, particularly. You know, my mom, um, who my dad was a attorney and did quite well. I grew up. I went to private school. I was a upper middle class, or you know, a, a rich kid. Uh, grew up in Baltimore, very privileged, lucky. Um, but my mom and both my parents had grown up very working class. And, you know, my mom, I think in particular, just never forgot where she came from. I mean, one, she just treated everyone she ever interacted with, with just a huge amount of genuine respect. And I think both of them just instilled in me, I mean, who wants to grow up in a society where, again, tens of millions of people, you know, they wake up, they go to work, and then they have to make these trade-offs between do I keep my house or buy medicine? Do I put enough food on my the table for my kids or you know pay my rent? I, that's just awful. I, I don't want to be in a society like that. It makes me sad. It makes me angry. We see the ramifications of what it does to us socially and politically, how it's tearing this country apart. 
that's why I do what I do. It's it's upsetting. I really uh, enjoyed this book. I mean, I, I learned a lot from this book. I, I thought it was a really well-written book. So I wanted to thank you for writing it and um, thank you. and for, for giving us some of your time today to talk about it. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Great to be with you all. So, Paul, you ready to go back to work for Walmart? <laughs> I am not ready to go back to work for Walmart. I, you know, I really, really enjoyed this book. There were some times where I've been so primed because they are my former employer and because I've, uh, you know, I've read a lot about their malicious practices where I was, I, I admit I was pretty skeptical uh, reading Rick's book. But I think like in this conversation, the book ends with a, a chapter, the last chapter I would recommend to anyone. It's a real barn burner um, about income inequality and the nature of work in America and all that. So, no, I mean, do I believe that Walmart is trying to do a better job with their employees? Yes. Uh, would I want to work for them again? Hell no. Uh, so I mean, yeah. and I think that's that's the case for a lot of retail work in America. It's just extractive and exploitative. And, and that is an indictment of American capitalism that you wouldn't want to work for the nation's largest employer. You know, I, I often think that if retail employees did what they did away from our line of sight, that they would have more respect, right? Like uh, that that a retail job is just as hard and as just as deserving of dignity as factory work. But because we interact with them on a daily basis and because we we see what they're doing, then we think that their job is easy or that it's uh, uh, frivolous or that it's something that's not worthy of a, a living wage. So I think that in a lot of ways, uh, customers are complicit in this as well, because we think of mm -hmm. retail work as unskilled labor. When I can tell you, having not just worked at Walmart, but worked at independent bookstores and chain bookstores, and uh, I worked at Sears and 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 various other retail jobs, it is a skilled job uh, that is just as worthy of a living wage as any other. So it's not just Walmart. Walmart is not just to blame for this. It is uh, society-wide, for sure. We will put a link to Rick's book in the show notes and uh, or you can go uh, pick up Still Broke at your favorite independent bookstore. You can get it from the library or surprisingly, you can actually buy it at Walmart. That's right. It's marked down. It's uh, 2190 on Walmart.com <laughs> right now as I speak. Always low prices. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.